Welcome to the Solo City Church Podcast, a podcast for the glory of Jesus and the edification of the church. The following is a recent sermon from one of our Sunday worship gatherings. We hope you enjoy. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? The disciples said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Matthew thirteen. 44 through 52. So today, we're going to be focusing on the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great cost. And uh, as we think about these two parables, I think it would be helpful to, um, to kind of think about an example from our day and age to help us kind of understand what these parables are getting at. And so, as I was thinking about these parables, I was thinking about the old MasterCard um, commercials. You guys remember those? The ones where um, it would show, like, normally be like a family, and it would be be going to a baseball game or something, and it would show, like, tickets, $45, um, Coke and popcorn and hot dog, $18, autographed baseball, $50. And then at the end, kind of the punchline of the ad was, having a real conversation with your lover and her old son, or priceless, exactly. And so the point of those ads was saying that, while yes, there was cost involved in these outings, ultimately, the joy and what was created out of those sacrifices made it all worth it. And so with these parables, the same is true. It's easy to kind of get caught up in the fact that they're selling everything. And yes, it's true, they sold everything. The man, in verse 44, he finds a treasure in a field, he covers it up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And likewise, the pearl of great price, the merchant is in search of fine pearls, and he finds one of great value, and he sells everything that he has and buys it. But I think we need to look a little bit deeper. Because it's not just every day that you sell everything that you have to obtain one And so we have to understand what caused them to make these acts of sacrifice. And what we see in Scripture, the key right here in this verse is 44. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So what we see is we see that the the kingdom is supposed and is intended to be received and can only be received out of a place of sacrificial joy. And so before we dive into this passage, I just just want to kind of take a quick moment and just sort of explain what the kingdom of God is in this context. Because 
when you think about the kingdom of God, and if you look at really Matthew chapter 13, there's so many different parables explaining the kingdom of God that it can be kind of hard to get your arms around. And we're not going to get our arms completely around the kingdom of God in this sermon or probably in the entire preaching ministry of this church because it's just so massive and it's so, so much more than we can even begin to understand. But kind of a, a working definition of the kingdom is just basically the place where God reigns. And so this is all-encompassing. This goes with uh, the objective truth about God, that he is king, that he is the one who is over everything. And then it, it affects the way that the people of the kingdom um, live. So just we're going to come back to that and look a little bit more at the kingdom and, and what it means. Um, but that's a good place to start. So as we said, the kingdom is to be received from a posture of joy, an overflow, sacrificial giving that's prompted by the joy that we have in our hearts for Christ. And so I want to take a moment and explain how the kingdom is not obtained. Because a lot of times we try to obtain the kingdom by other means. And so the first way that the kingdom is not obtained is, is not obtained by sacrifice made out of fear. So maybe this is how you think about the kingdom of God. Maybe this is how you think about God. As if he is angry. As if he is just waiting for you to slip up so that he can cast you down. And so that he can rub your face in your sin. And so that you can um, appease him. So that you can take away the anger that he has towards you. By your sacrifice. By what you're giving up. And so it's not based on joy, but it's based on fear. But John, 1 John 4 says this in verse 18. It says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So the truth is that when we are operating out of fear, when we're acting because of fear that we have in our hearts, we're probably doing things that we really don't want to do. So, a lot of times people in our lives can, can try to use fear to control us and to cause us to do things that we don't want to do, but we do them anyway so that they're not angry with us. So maybe, maybe you have had an abusive spouse who would just try to make you feel so bad and he would just, you know, you would just, you would just, Try your hardest to do everything right so that your spouse will be pleased with you. Or maybe it was a parent who was the same way. Where you just always felt like they were angry, just waiting. And so you would, you would do things that you didn't want to do. But the good news today is that that's not how God operates. That's not the way that we receive the kingdom. He's not manipulative like the people that we may have experienced. But the reality and the good news of this is that the kingdom, when we come under the lordship of Jesus, it frees us to give everything without fear of punishment. So it's not about appeasing an angry God, but you're, you're at a posture where you can say, this is who I am, this is, this is everything that I am, and I understand that it's not about me doing enough to appease you. But because of the love, because of the joy that is given to me in Jesus, that I'm going to freely give it because it's so much greater than, um, than living a life just full of fear. But maybe, maybe that's not what you identify with. Maybe you don't struggle thinking about the kingdom and receiving um, grace in terms of fear. Maybe you are honestly like me and you think about the kingdom more so 
as something that should be obtained by sacrifice as part of a set of do's and don'ts that if we complete correctly will earn us the kingdom of God. And so a way to think about this is uh, you try to obtain the kingdom through religious obligation. And if we're honest, we sometimes wish this was how the kingdom was achieved because we feel pretty good about ourselves. Maybe, maybe even you're sitting here, and if, if you want to know if this is where you fall, if you were thinking about the people who operate out of fear and, and be like, oh man, I'm so glad that's not me, you probably operate out of this one, of the feeling like you've got everything together and that you, you love the fact that you can, that there are commandments and rules in Scripture, which that's not bad in and of itself. The Psalms talk about the love of the Lord, the love of His commandments. But where we start down the wrong path is when we base our standing with God or when we base our inclusion in the kingdom based on how well we feel like we're measuring up to those commands and those uh, rules. So most of the time it goes like this. We don't have any major sins in our lives. You know, we're not cheating on our spouse. We're not stealing money from our employer. We're not murdering people. And so we feel pretty good about ourselves. We, we don't really pay much attention to those smaller sins that are there like pride and gossip and anger. And really what we do is we have a nice life. We've got a well-behaved family. We've got control of our finances. We've got all the boxes checked on what it means to be a good Christian in America. And so even when we do sacrifice of our times, because most of us here <clears throat> who struggle with this do make sacrifices. But instead of it being from a place of just overwhelming joy like we see in these parables. It's because we want to feel good about ourselves. And we want to feel like we are validating ourselves in the kingdom. And so we would do very well to hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 15, 7 through 9, when he says, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So if, if this is you today, like it's me, let's really take inventory of our hearts and see, am I only living the life of a Christian, sacrificing, laying myself down, because it's what I'm supposed to do, because I call myself a Christian? Or is it rooted in something greater, which is just an unshakable hope and a confidence that produces a joy that, that Christ has done everything that we need? And we can never obtain it on our own. But there's another side of this religion. And it's, it's not so much, I have everything together, so I deserve the kingdom. But it's the opposite. It's, I don't have anything together. I have... I, you know, I, I'm just a mess. My finances are a mess. I'm struggling with all sorts of sins, and I just, I just don't have it together. I don't look like the typical American Christian. But really, if you think about this, this is really the same. It's a different side of that same coin of trusting in your own ability, trusting in your own works to obtain the kingdom. And really, what both of these come down to is we're not trusting the finished work of Christ. 
Because it's true, like this stance may feel a little bit better. We might feel better about sort of propping ourselves up. We're saying, oh, poor pitiful me, I'm just so, so struggling. But in essence, it's just trusting your own works. And it's true, you don't measure up. But Christ has measured up for you. And so you can boldly seek the king. You can boldly sacrifice everything, not because you deserve it, but because you don't deserve it and have been invited in. So as we think about these two realities of how the kingdom is not obtained, through fear, through religious obligation, we get to how the kingdom is obtained. And the kingdom is obtained by sacrifice made out of joy, out of an overwhelming joy that is placed into our hearts. And this joy is not something that we just muster up. It's not something that we uh, just try harder, just, you know, grab hold a little tighter, and just do it. It's not like that. What it is, it's this joy that's obtained through the knowledge of who Jesus is, through the knowledge of the kingdom, who the king is, and who the kingdom is. So first of all, we joyfully sacrifice everything because of who the king is. Jesus came to proclaim and bring the good news of the kingdom. So this is kind of, if you think about this passage, it's a little bit uh, hard to understand because you have Jesus who's proclaiming the kingdom, and yet, he is the kingdom. Luke 17, 21 says, The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. This is Jesus speaking of himself, saying, I'm the kingdom. And so Jesus is the essence of the kingdom. Colossians 2 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So the king of the kingdom is truly the king. All of these other methods of dealing with our own guilt, our own shame, they fall short. But Jesus has made a way for our sins to be forgiven. Furthermore, he has put, his, put our sins on him. The full wrath of God that we deserve for our vain attempts of trying to earn our way to God. Jesus, who never attempted any of those, took them all on himself. And he drank the cup of wrath that we should have drunk. So that we don't have to. And this is our king. This is our ruler. This is the one who represents us. We're not represented by our own sin in Christ. And so this sacrifice, this joyful sacrifice, is made from a place of satisfaction, which leads to heart affections for our king that honestly make it impossible not to forsake everything else. Matthew 11, 28-30 kind of speaks to this place of satisfaction that Jesus calls us into. From where we operate. From where we lay our lives down. And he says in verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So we know that Jesus' ministry was proclaiming the kingdom. 
And this is the invitation. Come, be satisfied, rest. Notice it's not come or I'm going to be really mad at you or I'm going to manipulate you. No, it's come. Just come and rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. No, you don't have it together. Yes, you need rest. But that's what I offer. I'm not shaming you. I'm inviting you to experience what you can never experience on your own. And so it's from this place of satisfaction that we are then changed. Ezekiel 20, 36, 26 and 27 puts it this way when it talks about the experience of having God change your heart, change your desires. And it says this, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So from this place of satisfaction, no longer are we trying to earn our way. But instead, we are just looking at Jesus and being transformed. And I don't think we understand how amazing this really is. The fact that any of us desire anything of the kingdom. I mean, think about a food that you don't like. For me, it's onions. I hate onions. Amen. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's nothing I can do to make myself like onions. And I never, there was not a point where I said, you know, I'm just not going to like onions. I just don't like onions. There's nothing I can do about that. And the same is true where, uh, see Felix laughing, I'm sure he's thinking about ranch. He hates ranch. But um, yeah, so like there's nothing we can do to change our feelings. There's nothing we can do to change our desires. And so the miracle of salvation is that where we once craved the darkness, where we once craved sin, where we once desired to validate ourselves based on our own works, we now are at a place where we are completely satisfied and we have been given new desires. New desires so that we, not even because we feel like we are obligated to or because uh, something bad is going to happen if we don't, we're at a place where we can just lay our lives down for the sake of the gospel. So we can lay it on our desires. And we have new desires. We desire to spend time with the Lord. We desire to spend time in prayer. And it's from here that that joyful sacrifice of obtaining the kingdom is made. We see this all throughout Scripture of people encountering the kingdom, encountering God, and being changed in this regard. So we think about Paul in Philippians 3. Paul, as you know, before he came to Christ, we know him as kind of the author of most of the New Testament, the super apostle who, uh, you know, is like the Christian rock star of first century Christianity. But before he was any of those things, he was a Jew who hated Christians, who had no desire to see Christ's kingdom come, had no desire to share in the kingdom that was prophesied by Jesus and that was instituted by Jesus. And yet when he met Jesus, when he met God on the Damascus road on his way to persecute Christians, he had a desire to go and to do what he thought would earn him the favor of God. He met Jesus, and instantly his desires were changed. Which later on in his life, it leads him to write these words that um, you probably have heard before, but it says in uh, Philippians 3, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Because really what Paul was doing was putting confidence in his flesh. He really thought that what he was doing was going to earn him right standing with God. 
And he even says this, he says in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering. Becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So you just see this understanding of what I have in Christ is so much greater than anything that I left behind. And Paul's not alone. You look in the Old Testament. You look at Abraham, who left his home to follow God because a promise was made to him that was greater than anything that his homeland had to offer or Moses, who in Hebrews it says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt as he was looking to the reward. And there's tons of examples of this. If you want to read some, go to Hebrews chapter 11. And it's just full of people who left one thing to obtain something so much greater. And at the end of this chapter, it says, summing it all up, it says, And all these, though commanded through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. So even with Abraham, or with, uh, with the nation of Israel, they did inherit the promised land. They did inherit a land flowing with milk and honey. But ultimately, it wasn't the fullness of the promise that was made. And they were not looking just to that immediate promise, but they were looking to the future promise of the kingdom of God in its full. And even more, we can look at Jesus himself, who in Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see that? The sacrifice that Jesus made to bring redemption to all of humanity was based on joy. He could have lived a comfortable, who knows, 10, 15, 20 more years before he died a natural death as a man. He could have lived in comfort. He could have worked his ministry in a way where he was more inclusive. But ultimately, he saw the glory of God and redeeming sinners as far greater value than anything that his life had, anything that his comfort afforded. And so we have to ask ourselves this question. Is Christ truly worth everything to you? 
Are you honestly satisfied with him, or do you want something else? This something else could be anything. It could be riches. It could be success in business. It could be a big ministry. It could be a big family. Or it could be something like a hidden sin that you just you want. The pleasure that it gives more so than the joy that comes in being known and fully known by God. And there's another element to this passage, and it's in verse 47, where it talks about the parable of the net. And it says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what this parable is saying is that there's a net that's cast out. There's people who look like they're experiencing the kingdom, look like they're their real deal. They're drawn in. They look like fish. They probably smell like fish. But the truth is, they don't really know the power of the kingdom. And what we see as a differentiator here is that joy, that sacrificial joy that comes and so if you're here and you, you don't have just a desire, even, even I think we need to take a second and explain joy is not so much just a feeling, but more so it's, it's a faith in who God is. So that even if you may not feel happy or whatever, you trust that, that He is who He says He is. And that the kingdom is what it says it is. And the promise is far greater than anything. But the reality is that there's some people here today who may be like these fish, who are drawn in, who look like the real people, but don't really have that joy and affection. And there's no condemnation here. But we should really take inventory of our lives and ask ourselves, do I really treasure Christ above everything else? Because the truth is, if we answer no to that question about is the kingdom enough, is Christ enough? The problem is not with Christ's ability to satisfy. It's not with Christ's ability to make the kingdom something that brings joy, but rather it's a reluctance to truly look to Him. Like in Hebrews 12 with Jesus, or it encourages us to look to Jesus, the author, perfecter of our faith. And so he is eager for you to experience this, for you to really gaze at him, stare at him, and see who he is in all of his beauty and glory, so that we can be, like that old hymn says, uh, we can see the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace. This is, this is true, that Christ can satisfy, that Christ does satisfy. And we sacrifice because of who Christ is for us, what he's done on our behalf. But not only is there a king, there is also a kingdom. And this kingdom is another thing that motivates us to joyfully sacrifice. And we can think about the kingdom in two parts. One is the kingdom now, that we experience a part. And the second is the kingdom eternal, which is what we will experience in the fullness of the promise. And so the kingdom now is characterized by the local church 
and the global church. And you can kind of think about this as uh, churches being kind of little pockets of kingdom people where we experience the kingdom in part while we wait for the kingdom in full. And I could continue to try to explain this, but Tim Keller does a much better job. And um, this is a long quote, but I think it's very beneficial, very helpful for us. And so it's going to be on the screens. So it says this. What is the relationship of the church to the kingdom? On the one hand, the church is a pilot plant of the kingdom of God. It is not simply a collection of individuals who are forgiven. It is a royal nation. In other words, a counterculture. The church is to be a new society in which the world can see what family dynamics, business practices, race relations, and all of life can be under the kingship of Jesus Christ. God is out to heal all the effects of sin, psychological, social, physical. So that's the kingdom now, the, the church, as far as what the church is. But on the other hand, the church is to be an agent of the kingdom. It is not only to model the healing of God's rule, but it is to spread it. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Christians go into the world as witnesses of the kingdom. To spread the kingdom of God is more than simply winning people to Christ. It is also healing of persons, families, relationships, and nations. It is doing deeds of mercy and seeking justice. It is ordering lives and relationships and institutions and communities according to the authority to bring in the blessedness of the kingdom. So in other words, we experience elements of the kingdom of God in community with one another. It's in community with one another where we sacrificially love one another. Where we give of our time and our resources for the sake of our brothers and sisters. Where we bear one another's burdens. And ultimately where we collectively look to Jesus to satisfy us and to sustain us. And in doing so, what we experience is peace and satisfaction because we're living our lives the way that God has intended us, the way we were created to live them. But the second element is just as important. As we live in the kingdom, community with one another, we, there's an overflow of joy, and we in turn seek for our friends and our family and our community, and ultimately the nations, to experience this kingdom to the glory of God. As we live in community, there, as we love our brothers and sisters, we are filled with so much joy, so much such a clear picture of grace, such a clear picture of Christ. That again, we cannot help but sacrifice everything for the sake of our friends and family and our, our workplaces and our nations to know the same God that we know. But... While this is what it looks like to live in the kingdom now, there's something that's even greater than what we experience in the church right now. And what we have is we have the kingdom eternal. 1 Corinthians 13, 9-12 explains it like this. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, when we see, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I don't think we understand what Paul's saying here a lot of times. He's saying we know in part, and we have partial, but then 
he, he compares it to the way that a child speaks. And this is something that maybe I didn't think about until I had a child who tries to speak. And right now, everything is bah! Or bah bah! It's all the same. And it, it's, it's gibberish. It's not, it doesn't make any sense. And ultimately, he has partial understanding. Like, he knows that Ashley is mama, but he doesn't know what that entails. He doesn't know what he's really saying. And when he grows up, hopefully he outgrows those vowels. And hopefully he sees, kind of, he has a more complete vocabulary. He has a, instead of a partial vocabulary, he has a full vocabulary. And this is what Paul compares this to. So what he's saying is, I mean, think about just even the most, the greatest, most spiritual moment that you've ever experienced on earth. Whether that was uh, your own salvation, or whether that was salvation of a friend or family member, or just a really powerful time of worship, or just, just think about the pinnacle of joy that you've experienced in your life thus far. What he's saying is, that joy that was produced is going to be unnecessary in eternity because of the fullness. So think about how you felt or the, the joy that you experienced in those moments and then multiply it by infinity and then make it last for forever. And that's a picture of the reality of the joy of the kingdom and the kingdom that we await. Revelation 21 puts it this way. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be, them, will be to them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's ultimately the hope that we have in under the Lordship of Jesus. It's that while on this earth we will experience trouble, we will have tears, we will have sorrow, we will struggle with sin, but in eternity, none of that will be there. Because we will be with our King. Spending eternity reveling in the matchless grace of God. Just poured out on us over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Never ending. That kind of satisfaction that we cannot even begin to imagine on this earth. And so how can we honestly look into this future reality, not a future hope, not a future gamble, but a future reality and still settle for the cheap joys that our flesh offer? How can we still look at that pornography? Or how can we still just throw ourselves into gossip? Or how can we even think that we can do something to deserve this? The truth is we can't. 
And the truth is, we are settling for so much less than what God has for us when we do this. John Piper uh, has a quote that has been uh, instrumental in my life, and it's thinking about these joys that we settle for, whether it's sin or whether it's some sort of uh, idolatry of some sort. What he says is, he says, cheap joys take no work. And that's true. There's nowhere in Scripture that says that living the life of a Christian and sacrificing everything now for the sake of a future kingdom is going to be easy here. I mean, again, we can look at Jesus. Jesus' life was, he was the perfect example of sacrifice. And yet, I don't think any of us here would, would trade our life for his, for being honest. The, what he experienced on earth. The cross, the wrath of God poured out for us. But the joy that comes on the other side of that sacrifice, the joy that comes on the other side of eternity, where we've lived our lives in sacrifice and we've made Christ supreme in our lives, it's going to be worth it. The way that we experience sin now, where we build it up like it's going to finally satisfy our desire, like it's finally going to satisfy that itch, like if we can have uh, control over this one situation, then we're, we're going to be fine. Like we're never going to want to control anything ever again, and it's just going to be this, if we can get this one thing, then we're going to be satisfied. And what we find out is that that's never the way it goes. We always want more. It's never enough satisfaction. But with Christ, though the sacrifice is great, with the kingdom, the reward is truly worth it. It's truly worth it. And so as we think about this reality of the kingdom and this reality of joy-filled uh, sacrifice, I think there's a couple things that we can take away from here. And the first thing is this. Maybe you're here today and you're hearing this sermon and you want to believe it, maybe. Maybe you want to believe that Christ is worth everything, but at the end of the day, you really don't. At the end of the day, you still want to hold on to your sin, or you still want to do things your own way. What we need to do is we need to confess to Him, and ask that He would reveal Himself to you. So you kind of see this uh, with the disciples in Matthew 13, because basically what it is, Jesus has just spoken of several parables, and the disciples are like, we don't understand what you're saying. Can you explain it to us? And so they had the desire, but at the end of the day, they really didn't understand. They didn't really know. They hadn't experienced the realities of these parables. And in verse 51, you have just such, a, such an insight into the heart of God when it comes to us knowing Him, where He's explained uh, what the parables mean and some specific parables. And He asks them, says, have you understood these things? And that implies that like, if he had, they hadn't, he would have kept going. Because he wanted them to understand. And that's the heart of God for you. That even if you're at a place where you don't want to sacrifice, where you don't want to give everything for the sake of knowing Christ, he's patient with you. Isaiah says, a faintly burning wick he will not quench, and a bruised reed he will not break. Just the fact that you have that desire to treasure him is evidence of God's grace in your life. So press into that. And for some, of, some others of us, what we really need to do, maybe we do know that Christ is worth everything. 
maybe we have experienced that, but maybe we're getting kind of wishy-washy on it. Maybe we're starting to have our doubts. Maybe we're thinking, I don't know, is it really like, is the kingdom really greater than the joy that I get from getting around with a group of people and talking smack about people? Like, is, is it really greater than that? Or the control that I feel like I have over my life? And so what I would encourage us to do is to really meditate on the goodness of God that's revealed to us in Christ. And I mentioned earlier Hebrews 11. That's a great place to start because Hebrews 12 literally says, since we're surrounded by all of these people who have gone before us as a life of pilgrimage, forsaking the now for the sake of the future, for the sake of the kingdom, it says let's be encouraged by them. And so maybe today spend some time in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12. Maybe spend some time in Romans, Romans 8. Maybe just spend some time off by yourself just, just thinking about the goodness of the Lord. Kind of like we did in worship where we just recounted all the faithfulness that God has shown us in our lives. Because again, Christ will always be able to satisfy if we will look to Him, if we will yield to Him. And the last thing, two things that I think are very beneficial and overlooked a lot of times in the life of, of a Christian is ultimately we want to remain in that posture of joy that leads to sacrifice. And so there are things that we know in our lives that if we do them, they stir our affections for Christ. And so we should do those things. These are going to be different for everybody. I mean, there's the obvious, the reading your Bible, praying, um, fasting, the spiritual disciplines. But there's other things, like maybe for you, the Lord just really speaks to you and you have an awareness of His greatness when you go hiking or when you go for a walk. And don't hear me saying that like to be a Christian is just to go on a walk. Like That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there are things in our lives that God uses for us individually based on the way He's created us to, to woo us and to draw us. Maybe it's music. Maybe when you listen to music, you just are in awe of the creative power of God. And when you, when you devote yourself to those things, then you have affections for Christ. You have joy for Christ. Like I said, I don't know what those are for you. So maybe this week, take some time and just, just think of some things that, that you know stir your affections for Christ. That after doing them or after uh, spending time, you come away just more in love with Christ. But the inverse of that is also true. There are things that stir our affections for Christ, but there's also things that stifle our affections for Christ. And so, it's very simple. While we do the things that stir our affections for Christ, let's not do the things that stifle our affections for Christ. Again, these are not necessarily the sins that, uh, it's not so much the sins that you may struggle with in your life, it's those smaller things. Maybe it's, uh, you know that if you, uh, watch TV, you're going to be there for eight hours and then your, your fervor for the Lord is going to be sapped. Don't watch TV. Because what's, what's, what's sacrificed is going to be so much greater. The reward is going to be so much greater than anything you give up. So don't hear this as a legalistic way of saying, oh, I'm not going to do this because I don't want, I want to be good enough or I want to uh, not be, I don't want to receive the punishment but rather, from this place of looking at Jesus and saying, man, I know that when I spend time and devote my time to these other things, that I lose my zeal for God. And I don't want that to happen. 
And so, let it be true of us that we are a church that is filled with joy, that sacrifices for one another and sacrifices for the sake of other people knowing God. Let it be true that we are a people who love the Lord our God all of our heart and all of our soul, all of our mind and all of our strength. Thank you for listening to the Solo City Church podcast. We hope that you are encouraged and empowered to follow Jesus more than you ever have before. For more information about our church, please visit solocitychurch.com.